0: be seated. So, Pastor did um, mention a brief comment to me. He said, feel free to correct that I'm from New Zealand, not Australia. But people uh, confuse that all the time, and that's the closest I've heard. Some people have said the Netherlands. Some have said New Guinea. Um, So, Australia is very close enough. Thank you. (laughs) Let's turn together in our Bibles To 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you can find that on page 1134. Now, text this morning is verses 9 to 11, but for context, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. "'When one of you has a grievance against another, "'does he dare go to law before the unrighteous "'instead of the saints? "'Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? "'And if the world is to be judged by you, "'are you incompetent to try trivial cases? "'Do you not know that we are to judge angels? "'How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? "'So if you have such cases,' But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Congregation, growing up, one of the things we learn about the English language, whether in New Zealand or the States, is that there are several tenses in the language, tenses. You have the present tense, I go or I am going. You have the future tense, I will go, I shall go. And you have the past tense, I went. And in English grammar, tense is not just a stylistic decision based on how you want the sentence to sound. Oh, this might sound nice. Tense determines the meaning. If you want to talk about something that's now behind you, you have to use the past tense. Those were good times. I used to enjoy this. Or he was angry. She was upset. And oftentimes, when you put something in the past tense, you indicate that something has since changed. This used to be the case, but now it's different. Now, this morning, I want to... Uh, share this message with you with the title sin in the past tense sin in the past tense because we're going to explore together how jesus christ changes us and enables us to leave behind what was once true of us and then to lead lives according to a new identity a new identity in this letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is tackling a great number of problems in the church. There are so many um, to count even, but one of the key problems in the Corinthian church is pride. It's a prideful attitude among the Christians there. It's festering in the church. And here in chapter 6, we see that this prideful attitude, this being puffed up, is leading to to one Christian suing another Christian, a fellow member in the church. They're taking them to court in a civil uh, lawsuit. And at this time, uh, in the Roman civil courts, uh, it's known that judges expected some favors, some payment for a favorable verdict. And so naturally, people with higher status, with more money and more influence, they had the greater advantage in a court case. Taking someone lower than you to court almost guaranteed that you would get what you want. Well, that was what, that's what was happening among fellow believers, brothers in Christ, in the church. The richer one was probably forcing the other's hand with a lawsuit over a minor dispute. Paul calls it it trivial cases. And this showed that these brothers were not humble. They were not wise in resolving their disputes with one another. And the Apostle Paul says this is just sad and wrong. He says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you right now means you've been completely defeated already. You've lost. You're trying to have your own way. It would be far better to just lose, to be defrauded. But in this case, you are the ones wronging and defrauding fellow believers. That's what's going on in this passage. That's the background. And verses 9 through 11, which is what we're going to focus on this morning, they remind the Corinthians who they are, and how they are to live. These Christians were acting and living out of step with their identity in Christ. And so Paul reminds them, and by extension, he reminds us here this morning, that the gospel transforms our sinful selves and calls us to live according to our new identity. Let me repeat that. The gospel transforms our sinful selves and calls us to live according to a new identity. Let's consider what he says under two points. First, sin and our inheritance, and then sin and our identity. So first, sin and our inheritance. Our passage begins with a question, Do you not know? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, do you not know, brothers and sisters, that the way you're behaving right now in Corinth, doing wrong against each other, taking each other to court, manipulating one another, is exactly how unrighteous worldly people behave. And he's saying it's dangerous to keep living like this. Because if you go on like this, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. These are very strong words. That phrase, the kingdom of God, is talking about heaven, where God rules at the end of the age, where there will be perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect communion with God and fellowship with one another. It's God's heavenly kingdom, where there is joy and peace and righteousness. And according to 1 Peter chapter 1, this kingdom is an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. It's something we inherit later on as believers and as God's children. But as our passage points out, not everyone in this world will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul immediately says, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be duped into thinking that you'll just automatically get into heaven despite your active disobedience to the Lord. It's not automatic. It's not a right that we have from birth. Now, remember, Paul is writing to self-professing believers, to churchgoers. And he's warning them that it's possible to go through the motions. It's possible to be in the church community, to be a part of a Christian family and yet not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a sober warning to us. But let's be very clear about this. Paul is not saying that you can somehow lose your salvation, that somehow it's not secure enough so that it's fickle, it's... it's Weak. He's not saying one mistake and you're disqualified from the kingdom, so you better act well. He's not saying you need to be perfect and sinless in order to be good enough to enter heaven later on. So let's lay that to rest right here. That's not what the apostle is getting at. What is he saying then? What he's saying is this that if your life, brothers and sisters, continues in sinful living, an act of disobedience to God, if that's the identifying marker of your lifestyle, then that may be evidence that you've never been saved in the first place. It's not that you lose your salvation that you once had, but it's that maybe you don't have a salvation to lose in the first place. And that's evidenced by a lifestyle marked unrepentant sin. This summer, there have been two occasions when different people have mentioned that they came across a person with the name J. Kim. And I was oh, okay, that's interesting. One was an author with the name J. Kim, and another was someone's business partner with the name J. Kim. And I'm sure there are thousands of other J. Kims out there, Uh, Even in the United States, because it's a common Korean name like Robert Smith or something like that. But having the same name doesn't entitle me to an author's royalties, and it doesn't entitle me to make business deals, just like it doesn't entitle those two other people to come here to the pulpit and preach a sermon to you. It doesn't matter if the name is the same, if you've got the wrong identity. And the same goes for obtaining an inheritance. We know how inheritances work. It doesn't matter if you have the same first name, last name. What matters is the identifying markers. Are you the right person? Is this the correct identity? And Paul's message is that in order to obtain this heavenly inheritance, the kingdom of God, you need to be a rightful heir of the kingdom. Having just the name Christian is not enough to inherit the kingdom of God. The question is, are you truly God's child and heir? Has His grace changed your life? Is your life now marked by the identifying marks of being a Christian, of following and loving Christ? Or do you have the identifying marks of the the unbelieving world of unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 3 says, No one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, these are very provocative words because it says, well, no one keeps on sinning, but what he means is a consistent habit of sin. A lifestyle marked by sin with no sign of repentance, no sign of sorrow for what I'm doing against God, no evidence of change in your life. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived, says Paul. The world may tell you, and teachers on YouTube or your newsfeed might tell you. Your heart will try to deceive you, saying, this ain't so bad, this sin. Stop being so traditional and legalistic and fundamentalistic. You're part of the church. You do Christian things. You speak in Christian terms, right? You don't need to give up the habit of this sin. It's just a little thing on the side. You're devoted to Christ. But brothers and sisters, that is, and I choose my words very carefully, it is a damning lie. It is deceit. In verse 9, Paul gives us a list of sins. It makes us uncomfortable. A list of sins that characterize an unrighteous life. And he says, watch out. Your life should not be consistently marked by this kind of sin. And although this is not an exhaustive list, it's an instructive list for us. And so it's worth going through very briefly together. Paul mentions the sin of idolatry. And although today we don't see literal, physical idols uh, in our day, or at least uh, in our area made of bronze or gold, there are still idols that demand our devotion and our worship. Money is an idol. Work, reputation, sports, entertainment, whatever we put before God in our lives, Whatever we seek fulfillment and joy from before God is an idol that we are embracing and worshiping in our hearts. And it's just the same as worshiping and bowing down before a golden cow or a wooden statue. And so Paul mentions idolatry. Paul lists also sins relating to property. He talks about theft, swindling, and greed. So he's talking about Theft using our hands, literally taking things, and also theft using our hearts. The desire to take what is not ours, brothers and sisters, displays more than just a craving for stuff. It displays a discontentment with God. With what God has in his wisdom and providence given to us, we say, I'm discontent with that. I want to seek fulfillment through created things rather than my creator. And so Paul lists those sins as well. He speaks about a lack of self-control and talks about reviling, cutting people down with your words, assuming the worst about them, putting the, casting them in the worst light, gossiping about them, backbiting He also mentions drunkenness, losing your control to alcohol or other substances. Our minds have been given to us by God to meditate upon Him and to think about how to love one another and to enjoy His creation. We are not to lose control and give them up to intoxication or drunkenness. And then, related to self-control, Paul directs our attention to several sexual sins. He speaks of sexual immorality. Actually, that's the first one on the list, which includes adultery, both physically and mentally, having intimate relations outside the boundaries and promises of marriage. This includes pornography and impure fantasies and sensuality. In addition to that, Paul also mentions men who practice homosexuality. And he's talking about people who engage in homosexual acts. And I'm aware, and you are too, that this is a very controversial issue in our day. It's extremely unpopular in our cultural moment to say with Scripture that homosexuality is a sin against God. In fact, it's considered hate speech to do so. Who are you to tell people what they can do with their bodies and who they can love? Love is love, isn't it? But congregation, our answer is that God, God Almighty has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies because He is our maker. He designed us. He is for us. He knows what is best for us even more than what we know is best for us. He knows us more than we know ourselves. And throughout Scripture, God prohibits gay and lesbian lust and sexual acts, no matter how genuine that love may feel, just as he prohibits adultery, no matter how genuine that love may feel. Because our feelings are not the final authority, God is. He knows what is best for our flourishing. He knows our natures. And in Romans chapter 1, God tells us in clear terms that homosexual passions and acts are dishonorable, are contrary to nature, and they are an expression of spiritual idolatry. So, congregation, I want you to take two things away on this issue. Homosexuality is a serious sin in God's sight. Do not be deceived. Do not be duped into thinking otherwise. But... Number two, that does not mean we dehumanize or demonize those who practice this sin. It's a serious sin, but it's not a sin that puts someone beyond the reach of God's saving grace. It's the same with any sin in this list or beyond, so we never write anyone off because redemption is always possible through the gospel, the gospel. And this brings us to our second point, sin and our identity. Verse 11 begins with amazing words of hope. After listing all those sins, he says, and such were some of you. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what that means? It means that some of the Christians in the Corinthian church had been, in the past, idolaters, homosexuals, adulterers, thieves, revilers, drunkards. Such were some of you. But Christ had put their sin in the past tense. This is why you should never write someone off because of their sin. Because no sin is so deep that God cannot save you from it. No sinner is so far that God cannot bring him or her back. No sin is so dark, so filthy, so unforgivable that the blood of Jesus cannot wash it away as white as snow. Amen? Jesus came to save Sinners, that's all he came to do, for sinners. He delights to receive and embrace outcasts, prostitutes, murderers, thieves, and to wash them clean. Nothing pleases him more than to do this. And Brothers and sisters, this is the depth and the breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there's nothing Jesus' blood cannot wash away. That He can put anyone's sin in the past tense. Such were some of you. And is that not true just among us here this morning? Were we righteous before God found us? Did we have it all together? Were we churchy enough? Were we good enough so that God could save us? Certainly not. As one person put it, there is no saint without a past, and there is no sinner without a future. And all of us have a past, and in Christ, all of us found a future. And that little phrase, such were some of you, means anyone can come to Jesus but it also means no one can come to Jesus and remain unchanged. When someone repents and believes in Jesus, we don't expect them to change instantly. We should never expect that from someone when they come into this church. But also, we don't expect them to remain unchanged either. Because the gospel transforms our sinful selves. It helps us to lead a new life with a new identity. It's gradual, but it's true. It's a real change. It's a true change. And what does verse 11 say? Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love how one theologian put it. A man named John Webster said, "We he speaks of, The church facing the resistance of the gospel. I just love that phrase. We, as believers, face the resistance of the gospel. What that means is the gospel of Christ and his salvation resists our sinful desires. It challenges our pride and our way of life as it is right now. We cannot go on with business as usual as long as the gospel is in our hearts. Because the God of the gospel demands change, and he doesn't just demand and command change, he brings it about through Christ and by his Spirit. And so we could put it this way, Jesus is dangerous to our sinful habits. The grace of Jesus threatens to transform our sinful selves. The Holy Spirit threatens to change us for the better into the image of God, into true righteousness and holiness. And that is such good news because he's enabling us to to be transformed into the image of Christ. And we feel that God's grace, his transforming grace, is a threat, just like children feel that the dentist is a threat, maybe not just children. It challenges our comfortable lives. But it's good for us. It's good that God washes you and sanctifies you and justifies you through Christ and by His Spirit. Now, let's go a little deeper into those three words. Paul says, you were washed and sanctified. That's Old Testament ceremonial language. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the sprinkling of his precious blood, which we sang about and read about here, the filthiness of sin has been washed away. It's been atoned for so that we are now spotless and holy in God's sight. As it said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, You are now saints who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. All that you've done, all that you used to be, has been washed and cleansed through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. You're washed and sanctified. And thirdly, you've been justified. And that is legal language, it's courtroom language. The judge in the court declares that you are now righteous and not guilty. And get that. You're not only not guilty, but you're positively righteous before his sight. Not because you don't sin anymore. Not because you are good in and of yourself now. But because you have been clothed with the perfection and righteousness of Jesus himself. Your filthy clothes have been placed on him on the cross and his perfect, righteous robe has been placed upon you so that now you are justified, righteous in God's sight. Paul will say in Second Corinthians chapter 5 about Christ that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so through christ and by the holy spirit you've been washed sanctified and justified it's by the god the father so it's the triune god at work here the trinity working to make you his own the father initiating this through christ and by his spirit and notice that all three words washed sanctified justified are passive you didn't do the washing You were washed. You didn't sanctify yourself. You were sanctified and you were justified. It's God's initiative and it's God's grace from beginning to end. And by His grace, you have been given a new identity in Christ so that sin no longer defines you. Brothers and sisters, In one sense, yes, we are still sinners, but you'll be surprised to see how infrequently Paul speaks about us as sinners. We are saints, sanctified in Christ. That is more fundamental to our identity than our identity as sinners. You are no longer sinners because sin has been put in the past tense. We struggle with sin, but fundamentally, you are in Christ. You are a Christian. You are sanctified and justified before God. That is your new identity. Your old self is crucified with Christ. And now you have been raised to new life so that sin no longer has any claim on who you are. You can drop it. You can leave it behind. You can fight against it by the power of the Spirit. And the message is this, of our passage, the message of our passage, live out of that identity. Don't just write it down as a sermon note. Don't just log it in your brain, but live out of this identity and freedom in Christ. God regards you as a holy one, a saint. Now live according to that identity, because it's true. When a person becomes a soldier, I'm told, he acts according to that position. When you become the captain of a team, you grow into that position. And as some of us are finding out for the first time, when you become a father or a mother, you grow into those responsibilities. Well, since you have become a Christian, live according to that position and identity and all its responsibilities. You're free to do it. Congregation, the church, this church, is a gathering of saints. It's a place of transformation. It's a community of transformed people. And I didn't say perfect people, but I did say transformed people. You are not what you should be, but you're not what you used to be. And praise God for that. I am not what I should be, but I'm not what I used to be by the grace of God because our God has put our sin in the past tense. And so together, let us live in harmony and love as fellow heirs of that kingdom to come, not acting in pride, but in humility and love towards one another. And let us together give all the glory to our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to whom we now truly belong, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you truly for your work of salvation and of transformation in us and in our lives. We owe everything to you, who we are in Christ and our whole identity. And Lord, we pray now that you would empower us to live according to this new identity in Christ free us from the sins that still cling to us to this day, and keep us faithful and unwavering to the end, and bless us with the joy of inheriting your heavenly kingdom. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.